if possible, especially when they're younger, have them play multiple sports. I think that trains muscles that you aren't necessarily using when you're focused on one sport and one skill, and that's been shown to decrease injury rates. Welcome to the now and future of orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. And I'm your host, Sam Coates. Over a century years old, Campbell Clinic physicians are recognized national and international leaders in the field of orthopedics. With engaging conversations and stories, you'll hear how our physicians integrate the latest orthopedic treatments and medical advancements in musculoskeletal care through their continued and ongoing clinical research, innovation, teaching, and the writing of Campbell's operative orthopedic textbook. To learn more about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com. And for more podcast episodes, search the now and future of orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Lamplot. Dr. Lamplot is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine here at the Campbell Clinic. Dr. Lamplot attended the University of Illinois College of Engineering Medical School at the University of Chicago and did his residency at Washington University. Join us on this episode where you will hear taking on the tough cases and the bonds you make with your patients when they get the outcomes they need. Why it's important for the youth to play multiple sports versus only specific ones while their body is still developing. While Campbell Clinic's new training facility is as good as anything he's seen across the United States and what this means for this community, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Dr. Joseph Lamplot. You've been in New York, you've been in Atlanta, and now you're in Memphis. When you think about the places you've been and all the education you have, what does it look like to you to do orthopedics the right way, wherever you are? Yeah, so I would say having taken care of people of all ages, all skill levels, all activity levels, athletes, weekend warriors, lay people, the approach that I've taken to treating people is really treating them all essentially the same way. You're trying to help these people get better, get back to their previous level of activity. I don't really think the location necessarily matters. I think when you're practicing medicine, diagnosing the patient appropriately, using you know history, physical examination, any kind of workup that you have to do, but using the evidence to guide your treatment. So I really practice evidence-based medicine. That's something that's been instilled at every step of the way, medical school, residency, fellowship, and using the medical literature, using the evidence to inform decision-making, regardless of where you are, New York, Chicago, LA, uh, Memphis, that's really what it's all about. What does it look like when people don't use evidence-based medicine the right way? There's always new innovations, new technologies, novel things that are coming into practice. And I think it's our responsibility as physicians to stay up to date on the literature, make sure that what we're doing is safe and also improving outcomes. So, you know, you, you don't want to um, have the patient assume an excess cost for a new treatment that might not necessarily work as well. What it looks like, I would say you're probably more prone to inferior outcomes. You're probably prone to, you know, more issues happening. So, so you're saying it's very important to continue to leverage your experience, your training, innovation, 
but to also understand what's best for the patient and to make sure that you're always keeping the patient in mind. Yeah, and I would say your your, your education certainly doesn't stop when your training ends. All of us, you know, in, as physicians, the learning never ends. Things that we learn during medical school, residency, and fellowship, we're not going to be doing in 10, 15, 20 years, right? So things are going to continue to evolve. And as physicians, we need to stay up to date. We need to uh, follow the evolution of, of the treatments that we're doing. As I said, I mean, these things aren't going to be the same in, in a decade or two. So we need to, to evolve and follow the best evidence. When you think about where things are, time and place today, what's most exciting to you? about the changes that are happening in your field that are most impactful and beneficial? So as a sports medicine specialist, if you look at, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the things that we are now using arthroscopy or minimally invasive techniques to do, they were done using large incisions, more invasive techniques, longer recovery. And in a lot of ways, what we're doing now has improved outcomes as well. Faster recovery, oftentimes lower failure rates. So, that was kind of the big step in the last 30, 40 years is making things more minimally invasive using arthroscopy. Now, where I see the next thing potentially being is using navigation, robotics, using AI, you know, using algorithms to help us predict patient-specific treatments, right? So, you know, one treatment might not be the same for another patient, uh, depending on their, their age, their sex, their body habitus, whatever. So I think we're going to probably do a little bit more customization over the next few decades, and we're going to leverage technology to help us do that. Earlier we were talking, you've been one of the team physicians for the New York Giants, for the New York Red Bulls, the soccer team there. You've also been one of the team physicians for the Atlanta Falcons. And now you're here in Memphis, and we'll know you'll, you'll get involved here. But you were talking about it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a youth. It doesn't matter if it's an adult. It doesn't matter if it's a professional athlete. Sure. They need care. They need attention. They need expertise. And they need to get healthy. Can you maybe share a little bit from a relationship standpoint to the patient? What will that look like to do that well as things continue to evolve with robotics or with algorithms, the way you set it for people to feel like they can trust the technology, but also trust the physician that they're seeing to like know their best interest. And feel like an individual, not just a number or a product, right? Right, so, not looking at a computer screen. Exactly. You know, one of my mentors, the head team physician for the New York Giants, uh, Scott Rodeo, always said, these athletes on the team are your patients. Treat them like your patients in clinic, right? So your goal is to help them get better, help them return in, in the case of an athlete, get them back to sport and get them back at the same or higher level, right? That's their goal. And when a patient comes in to my clinic, you know, say they're just, somebody who has a normal desk job and uh, gets injured around the house, they still want to get back to normal stuff. They might have hobbies, activities they want to participate in. I treat them the same way. I mean, we're going to outline a treatment plan for them to get back to their prior level of activity, if not better, right? So the basic goals, the tenets of treatment are the same. Oftentimes, there's more cooks in the kitchen when you're dealing with a pro athlete, right? You have a pro or collegiate athlete, there's timelines, there's agents, there's, you know, there's a lot of money at stake. But at the end of the day, you're still treating these people the same way, right? You, you, can't, you can't speed up biology in a lot of cases. So you're treating them the same way. And of course, you're occasionally spending a little bit more time communicating with agents, with coaching staffs, with training staffs, et cetera. But the goals are the same and, and the treatment algorithms oftentimes are the same. Is that common for physicians to generally treat everybody the same? Or do you feel like as a physician, you, you've got to keep 
focused and you've got to be wired a certain way to really treat everybody the same, regardless of who it is, to give them the best experience every time. I mean, at least in my training and in my experience with really good team physicians that I've worked for and under, they've treated their patients in clinic and they've treated the athletes very similarly. So always behind closed doors, treat them just like patients, right? Communicate to whoever they give permission to you to do so with. But yeah, like I said, I, I think the goals are the same and people who have experience doing this that that I've, you know, have been my mentors, treat them the same way. Yeah, that's right? powerful. Yeah. That's cool for the patient to know too, to know the complexity, the the demands and yeah. all the different cases that their physician's seen and to know they're going to be given the same level of focus now, and attention. Now, I will say a lot of times where the collegiate and especially pro athletes might differ is their access to rehab on a daily basis. So whereas a patient who maybe works a full-time job can go to rehab after surgery or even in the setting of a non-surgical injury, maybe they're going three days a week or two days a week and doing a home program. These pro athletes are in the training room, you know, doing rehab with their therapist or with their athletic trainer five to seven days a week, right? So that's one of the advantages they have. But nonetheless, the, the treatment plan and the algorithm is the same. Yeah. Right? When you think about your patients and you think about the patients that listen to you and they do their rehab, they do the things that you just said, even when they might have a tougher schedule or more demands on them that they're not really in control over, What's most effective when you're trying to get someone to get healthy? I think giving them goals, kind of giving them a carrot to follow, saying our goal is to get you back to, say it's golf. You know, golf is a great example because a lot of people play. And oftentimes, you know, say after a rotator cuff surgery or shoulder replacement, I will say at this time point, we're going to let you putt, right? And then three weeks later, we're going to start doing chipping. And in six weeks, we'll do pitching. And hopefully in the next two to three months, we'll get you back to full swings. Wow. So when they have that timeline in front of them, and I tell them, as long as we continue rehab in your home program, that's going to help you achieve those goals. That, in my experience, kind of relating them to their goal. As we talked about, the goal is to get them back to their pre-injury level of activity. So when you can kind of progress them through and give them these tangible timelines I think that helps. It's practical. So, so finding when you know your patients and you know what they love and then showing them a path to get back to what they love. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And even patients that, you know, for high level athletes or, you know, even grade school, high school athletes, when they have an injury like an ACL injury, you know, a knee ligament injury, that can be devastating. That's typically nine months of missed time, right? And when they get that news, when they get that MRI and we tell them your ACL's torn, it's devastating, right? Oftentimes they get emotional and it takes time for them to process. But what I find is helpful is I tell them this is going to be an extremely active recovery. You're going to have surgery. You're going to start therapy the day after. You're going to be off crutches, hopefully within two to three weeks, jogging at three months, doing sports specific stuff at six months. We're going to get back on the field at nine, right? So when you give them that timeline, the, the switch kind of flips from, man, this sucks to, that's my goal, and I'm going to try to get there, right? So, so that's kind of the extreme example of a surgical patient staring down a nine-month recovery, but everything. I mean, a patient with a swollen knee and some knee arthritis, I tell them, listen, we're going to inject your knee with some steroid. We're going to get you some, some medication, get you into rehab, and hopefully get you back to golf in, in the next two weeks, right? So giving them a, a timeline or a projected timeline and a goal, I think is very powerful. If you're talking to a parent, and let's say 
I think, more than 40 million youth play sports around the country. What advice can you share to parents for children that are playing sports? What does that look like to take care of your body starting at a young age? So one of the difficult things about sports participation, as opposed to when we were younger, I played four sports, right? I play, I wasn't a year-round subspecialized athlete. Now it's very common. I'd say probably about half or more of those athletes are playing predominantly one sport for at least eight, nine months a year. And those are the kind of things you think about baseball and uh, UCL or Tommy John type injuries requiring Tommy John surgery are becoming more common, right? ACL injuries are much more common than they were, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I was growing up. So what I would say is, if possible, especially when they're younger, have them play multiple sports. And I think that trains muscles that, you know, you aren't necessarily using when you're focused on one sport and one skill. And that's been shown to decrease injury rates, okay? The other thing is conditioning. So kids love to play. Kids love to scrimmage. They love to play in travel leagues. They love to play 100 games a year, right? And at all levels, high school, college, and professional, they're doing lots of conditioning off the field. And oftentimes, kids in grade school, even in high school, aren't doing that. So conditioning, when the age is appropriate, doing weightlifting and and, uh, weight training, it's powerful, right? So not just playing, but practicing and conditioning as well. And so you're saying two things there. One, the stress that you can put on your body by playing the same sport for eight, nine, 10 months a year, playing the same sport versus historically where you've played a more variety of sports throughout the year. Exactly. Stressing those body parts time and time again. That's something to keep in mind. Yeah, especially when somebody's not skeleton mature. When you're talking about kids that are 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, growth plates aren't closed. They're still growing. It's a lot of stress to be playing the same sport for nine plus months a year. So absolutely cross-training, playing multiple sports, is it's beneficial for development. And uh, I stress it to all my patients. And then secondly to that, you said the conditioning that you do when you're in the college or professional level, obviously the intensity picks up a lot. So when you're younger, really trying to make sure you take care of your body and you're physically in shape to play those sports and that helps that helps your body. Exactly. Yeah, and strength training at uh, a relatively early age, so middle school, high school, and beyond, um, it's got to be a mainstay. You look at when we rehab patients after things like ACL injuries, meniscus tears, the focus is always strengthening the quad muscles, strengthening the thigh muscles. And it's been shown that the stronger those muscles are, those patients tend to get fewer injuries on the front end, right? So you look at some of these injury prevention programs, uh, like FIFA, the the, uh, soccer organization has put out, those programs which do maintenance and strengthening and flexibility have been shown in Europe to decrease injury rates, right? So that's an example of conditioning and preventatives that I think we should pay more attention to. Are you satisfied with the amount of awareness and teaching that's out there? in youth sports around the country, or do you feel like there's a big opportunity for people to know more and for people to take more deliberate action for the benefit of their family? Yeah, in terms of prevention, I think there's a huge gap. I think injuries, surgical injuries, ACLs, are still relatively rare, right? We're talking about 200,000 ACL surgeries across the country. So unfortunately, I think we're a bit reactive to injuries, right? We're not on the front end trying to stay ahead and prevent them. As I I told you about FIFA and their programs in Europe, they're ahead of us, right? So some of the European soccer league teams are doing these preventative things, and their injury occurrence is less than uh, other teams across the world, right? So 
I think there's a, there's a huge gap in the U.S. in terms of injury training and injury prevention. So talking about the next 10 to 20 years, aside from treatments we've talked about, I think that's a huge uh, opportunity. Earlier, before we were recording, you were talking about how impressive the Campbell's Clinic facility is here next door. And you, you said that it's as good as any facility that you've seen in the country. I know Campbell's Clinic is in multiple markets around the Mid-South, but I live here. And I yep. think it's easy maybe not to appreciate or realize what value this facility actually brings. And given the fact that, you know, you were in New York and then Atlanta and now you're yeah. in Memphis, you have a diverse perspective. Sure. Could you share more on that if you feel comfortable with it? Of course. So keep in mind, I'm relatively new in Memphis, but I think that gives me a, a different perspective, not having been around uh, this facility for a long time. But the the first thing that struck me is you walk through the front doors, you take a look to the left and you see the Excel Sports Performance Center. And it is as nice of a training facility for uninjured patients as I've ever seen, right? It has all the state-of-the-art weightlifting equipment, fitness equipment. There's an outdoor turf area. Last summer, some of the NBA draft prospects, including the number one overall pick, they were doing their, their pre-combine training, oh, right? That's awesome. Regularly, 901 FC is in there doing their training too, and then you'll see patients that had knee replacements recently doing their rehab there. These are generally, you know, sometimes more active patients that want to get back to more active things, right? So that's kind of the, the high performance end, which also sees, you know, patients of all ages and athletes of all ages. I, as I was in there walking around, I saw a, a class. In that class were some uh, high school kids. There were some uh, middle-aged folks and even some older folks participating in a class that was led by the, the folks at Excel. So high-level fitness, high-level physical therapy, and, and that's just, you know, on level one. And then on the fourth floor, there's a state-of-the-art surgery center with eight floors, which is extremely well-run and as good as a surgery center gets. And then a full-service clinic uh, on the third floor, uh, as well as a separate building with even more clinic space. So as, as far as facilities I've seen, it's as good as it gets. And having done my fellowship in New York, they had just built a sports performance center on the Upper West Side. I thought it couldn't get any better than that. And this place, you know, easily matched it. What does it say to you just for the investment, for the creativity about maybe where things are going? Yeah, I, I, I think it shows what they've been able to accomplish in order to be able to build something like that. Part of the reason I came here is I know it's not just a, a local leader, but it's a national and international leader, the Campbell Clinic. And I think having a facility like that will allow us to continue pushing the envelope and innovating and doing research on the patients that we're, that we're seeing, the conditions that we're seeing to make things better. So I think it allows us to continue being leaders, and that's, that's imperative. When you say international leader, what do you mean? Yeah, so my, my first exposure to Campbell's is the, is the textbook, Campbell's Op Operative Orthopedics. When I was a medical student, uh, and I decided I was going to go into orthopedics, the first piece of advice I got from my mentor at the University of Chicago was buy Campbell's, right? Little did I know, 10 years later, I'd end up on staff at the Campbell Clinic. Uh, so Campbell's is kind of the first exposure a lot of students have when they purchase the textbook. Um, when I kind of dug into the history and learned about Campbell Clinic and the 100 plus years that it's been around and some of the giants that have that have been here and led here, it's clear that they've been kind of on the leading edge for a long time and continue to do so. And so what will that look like to continue to push the envelope the way that you framed it? I have a big interest in research, and I think the most important part of research is collecting good data. 
Our shoulder and elbow group just won the Charles Neer Award, which is kind of the highest the highest honor in shoulder and elbow surgery. Nice. Uh, so, so that's something that, uh, as a sports surgeon, we're trying to go after the sports equivalent of that award. So I think collecting data, evaluating new techniques, and really seeing where things go uh, with our patients uh, will help us to kind of push the envelope and improve things going forward. So good data collection, high volume. This is the highest volume center uh, in the Mid-South. You need good data, but you also need a high volume. And that those were uh, two of the kind of points that drew me into the Campbell Clinic. So this is what got you here? Yeah, I mean, all around, right? History, market leader, national leader, high volume, lots of motivated, hungry uh, staff. And I, I think we share common goals, right? We want to collect data, publish great research, and push the, uh, the field forward. What's the value to a community when you have passionate physicians and surgeons people that care about their patients, people that are able to serve every person that's a part of that community, and they're completely focused on finding, continuing to find the best ways to treat their patients. Well, I think patients want the best treatment, right? I mean, you, you think about when you need something, you go online, you search best so-and-so, right? Best plumber, best uh, computer programmer, best whatever service you need, right? And I think of us I like to think that we're the best at what we do, right? And that's what patients want. And in terms of, you know, research and being on the cutting edge and using the most up-to-date evidence-based techniques, that's what patients need. I mean, if that's if that's what's out there, they should be getting that. So, you know, my my calling as, as a surgeon and as a clinician is to give my patients that. So, like I said, I, th- I think my colleagues here are very like-minded and they approach medicine the same way. So, I think it's a huge asset for the community. I'm biased. Obviously, I want us to succeed and, and, and do great. But I think offering what, what's the most cutting edge, the most evidence-based is uh, a huge asset to the community. If you were at a medical school and somebody wanted to ask you, they're trying to figure out their own path, but you being an orthopedic surgeon and specializing in shoulder, elbow, and knee, what's fulfilling about the work and coming in in people's lives when they need help? How would you frame that or describe that? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I think medical students, residents, trainees, that's another aspect of of here that keeps us honest, having them uh, to educate, to teach, to show them you want to lead by example, because they're going to become the next generation, right? So that's another thing that makes us, I think, great is having them kind of hold us accountable so that we're staying up to date, teaching the right stuff. But to answer your question, what drew me into this field and going back to my goals as a physician is to get patients back to where they were before their injury, right? So whether it's shoulder, knee, elbow, whatever I'm doing, that patient comes in damaged. They can't do the things that they want to or need to do. And, you know, whether it's surgical or non-surgical, seeing them at three months, six months, nine months, however long it takes, get back to that. Sometimes they'll bring in pictures or they'll show you videos of them on the golf course or uh, on a boat water skiing or something like that. That's gratifying, right? That's why we do this. So there's different fields within medicine where you can kind of get that same satisfaction, but that's what drew me to to orthopedics. It's very tangible. And you're saying that's what continues to keep you focused? Absolutely. I mean, taking care of patients and helping patients get back to where they need to be, that's what keeps me going day to day. Research can be frustrating, right? Sometimes you think there's a technique or there's a treatment that's going to change the game, and you evaluate it over you know years, and you find it's not what you thought it would be, right? So that part can be frustrating. But the common theme of what we do is in general, you know, 
complications happen, bad outcomes happen sometimes, but in general, patients tend to get better. And seeing those patients get better on a day-to-day basis definitely keeps me going. That's awesome. What sticks out to you about Memphis coming here and settling down? The people are really nice. Okay. So I think that was kind of the first uh, the first impression. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up outside Chicago. The people have been the nicest in general of anywhere I've ever been. Yeah. Um, so that's really stuck out. And the climate's been great, but I have not been here for a full summer yet. So we'll see how that goes. Enjoy it now. <laughs> yeah, we got two good hear. months. Yeah. Earlier, we talked about youth and you talked about how youth sports have changed. You talk about how things have changed where people would play more than one sport and making sure your body is prepared and you're taking care of your body. And you also talked about making sure you're in shape for the sports you're playing. We didn't talk much about adults because I didn't ask, but is there anything that you can share that you've told your patients for people that are listening to this? It might not be your patients right now. What kind of advice can you share to adults to keep in mind the entire time, Mm -hmm. each year, each decade to really take care of their body in, in ways that you've seen that really pays off? That's a great question. And what I said about youth sports and staying condition, keeping your muscles strong, keeping your quad strong, keeping your core strong, that follows through your entire life, right? When I see patients with knee arthritis, patients in their 50s, 60s, 70s, the common thing that I tell all of them is keeping your body weight healthy and keeping your quads strong is going to minimize your symptoms as long as possible right? And you think about what I said about young athletes, right? The way to minimize or decrease the risk of, of an ACL injury is to keep your quad strong, keep your, your core strong, and stay active, right? So all the, there are common themes that follow all the way through. So sports like pickleball are extremely popular now. And uh, you think about like a, a weekend warrior playing basketball once a week. I would say patients that participate in sports as their only form of activity I would caution a little bit about, against that. I would say uh, when possible, you need to mix in some cardio. You need to mix in some strength training. You need to condition for those things because oftentimes, you know, the mind is mightier than the body is, right? Even now, going to the gym and, and trying to lift weights that 10 years ago I was able to do, I can't do, right? You go out there and play pickleball or tennis without having any kind of a foundation, you can get hurt, right? So staying active, conditioning, jogging, uh, whatever cardio you want to do, um, on the days that you're not playing pickleball or basketball or whatever, it's key, right? So, it, and like I said, it carries all the way through. So those tenants stay the same from grade school, high school, all the way through adulthood. And you're saying it's the same thing. It, it really is, right? Yeah. Staying strong, staying healthy, staying light. It's important all the way through. As we wrap up, is there a story that comes to mind? If you think about a woman or a man that came in and they were really, they were just in a tough spot. They had a bad injury. They were upset but they did what you said and they worked the process. Yeah. So there, there's a, a few cases specifically that, that come to mind. Uh, one in particular, I have found my way to becoming the guy that repairs a lot of patellar and quadriceps tendons that previously failed, right? So these are uh, patients that basically can't straighten their leg out and therefore have a hard time walking. Sometimes this happens in patients that have had knee replacements that uh, have gone on to have complications, unfortunately. I had one woman that saw three different providers and ended up in my office. And we ended up doing a, uh, this is after about six to eight months of her not being able to walk without a brace and a walker, right? We were able to do an extensor mechanism reconstruction using a cadaver graft. 
And when I saw her six months post-op, she was walking completely unassisted, changed her life, right? So those patients that, you know, I love getting athletes back to sport. I love taking care of, you know, young athletes, high school, college athletes. But when a patient can't live their life, can't walk, and you give them that ability back, it's powerful. And that's a relationship that, you know, I'm going to have the rest of my life with this woman, right? So that in particular is something I won't forget. That's powerful. And what you're saying is she had three different physicians prior and you just came in and you, you worked with her and you figured it out. Yeah. You know, I, I reached out. So, so mentorship is so important. And I, I was fortunate enough to do uh, a lecture with three other panelists from multiple institutions. And one of the guys from the Mayo Clinic said, you know, if you ever have a question, reach out. Right. And this guy's been doing it for about 30 years. And this particular patient came in and three people had told her there's no surgical solution for you. Basically live with this. You're going to be in a brace. You're going to have a, you know, a walker, some assistive device for the rest of your life. And, you know, I said, I think I have an idea. What do you think? And reached out to the Mike Stewart at the Mayo Clinic. And he said, yeah, you know, I think I would do this, this and this. And we executed it and she did great. So, so it shows the power of mentorship, of maintaining relationships, staying in touch with people that might be, you know, 600 miles away, but in today's world, we can uh, we can help one another. Well, you didn't say this, but you said about him, but it also shows passion and a commitment to the patient, people going above and beyond to do what's best. We're kind of the tertiary care end of the line referral center. So if something can be done for the patient, we should be able to do it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Now and Future of Orthopedics, a Campbell Clinic podcast. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming soon each month. And for more information about Campbell Clinic, go to campbellclinic.com and also search the Now and Future of Orthopedics wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this episode, please do us a favor, tell a friend and leave a review. As your host, Sam Coates, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.